Hey, it's Dusty from the Lead Balloon Podcast, the show where we talk to communications professionals from global brands and institutions and tell stories of the lessons they've learned in do-or-die professional situations. And I know we're between seasons of the show right now, also looking for a sponsor for the work that we do, hint, hint. But I wanted to take a moment to highlight one of the most ridiculous conversations I've had in the last year about the evolving definition of the word literally. This is a topic about which I literally jump up and down with agitation because literally is supposed to mean actually. If you say you were literally blown away by something, you darn well better need the fire department to come get you out of a tree. And I'm aware that my pedantic stance on this topic makes me a figurative stick in the mud. And I'm not much fun at parties, but when you're brought up with the AP style guide as a holy text, there are just some rules that shouldn't be broken, darn it. So when I talked to sociolinguist Dr. Valerie Friedland, author of the book Like Literally Dude Arguing for the Good in Bad English, I had to bring it up. We talked to Dr. Friedland for episode 43 of the podcast, where she gave us a brief history of how slang evolves and why it's a bad idea for brands to try to co-opt it. And she was so informative and so wonderful and so fun to talk to. But in this clip that we just didn't have a place for in the episode, I still had to press her about her stance on the word literally. Many of the things that we say that we take to be normal speech today that isn't loaded with any kind of social stereotypes or feeling like it's weird or bad to say are things that at one point in our history were joked about, remarked about, criticized. And at that time, people didn't like it. But you wait a couple generations and no one even realizes it was ever a thing. And so a lot of times our reactions to new features, it, particularly because a lot of them come out of groups that we don't tend to prize or value socially, is negative at the outset. But over time, the next generation pulls those features up. And by the time we get around to another decade or two, those features are actually what's normal and they don't bother anybody any at all. So I think what we need to do is relax. We we tend to worry about language change when, in fact, the changes that are happening in our language this century are so much smaller than the changes that have happened over the last thousand years to our language that nothing is going to stand in the way of English progressing in a way that meets the needs of its speakers. Right, certainly. And, and you cite the example of the work of literature Beowulf, which I had... An English teacher, freshman year English at Monroe High School, Lana Carter, who actually pulled out and read for us the original, I, I call it a translation because it's technically written in English, but she read it to us in Old English and we didn't have a clue what the heck she was saying at the time. And so certainly there's a lot of natural evolution that happens in language. And so there are certain words like uh, that you talk about that I find quite versatile, quite useful as an elder millennial. Dude being another one of those that I feel has significantly improved the lexicon. But I, I have to say, Dr. Friedland, as a former news reporter and a working strategic communicator, my holiest of holy sacred texts is the AP style book. And so there is one example of evolving language in your book that you cite that I just have to push back on just a little bit. Okay, I want to hear it. And that is the use of the word literally to mean literally the opposite of its definition. There are a few days in my life when I felt as betrayed as I did 10 years ago when the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, I don't know if they caved to public pressure, and added figuratively as an acceptable definition to the word literally in its pages. So for me, now justify this crime against grammar. 
Oh, well, absolutely. I'd be happy to. I've heard a lot about literally. In fact, I had a feeling that was the word you were going to pick. (laughs) People are very upset about literally being used non-literally. They're literally very upset about it. (laughs) And I love it because... I'm literally stomping my feet. (laughs) I love it because the metaphorical extension of words we have already in the language is the bread and butter of English. You know, have you ever used the word dog? Of course. Okay. Have you ever used... All the time. Both D-O-G and D-A-W-G. Exactly. Now, have you ever used the word dog for something other than the four-legged friend? Yes. Yes, certainly. Someone was dogged in their pursuit. Okay. Are they furry creatures that you're using them in regard to when you say, oh, you're a real dog to your your friends? Well, some of them kind of (laughs) are. Or when you say, gosh, would you stop dogging me? What those are are metaphorical extensions of the word dog, which was an old English word, dogga. Which originally didn't even mean the dog in general. It meant a very specific breed of darker colored dog that was considered fairly aggressive. Hund was actually the old English word for dog. Now, that word got picked up in the 1200s, got used to refer to someone who was a bit of a scoundrel, uh, actually a big scoundrel, someone bad that had qualities of this dog, a metaphorical extension of some aspects of the quality of the word dog. So you take dog, which actually the fundamental meaning is this four-legged creature that's not human, and you're using it now for a human. So you're doing something that's the opposite of its main meaning, but you're metaphorically extending one of the qualities of that creature, which was that it was aggressive and kind of did up to no good. It was a little mischievous. And you're now using this part of the meaning for its main meaning metaphorically for a person, for a human. So literally used figuratively is very, very similar. The original meaning of literal is of a letter, copying a letter by hand. So it's really not this idea of exact or true, but the meaning of exact or true came from that you were copying a letter in exactness, right? To be an exact copy of the letter. And in fact, the word literate comes from the same root as literal, And it came to mean educated, but it basically meant of the letters. So our use of literal in the first place is not actually literal. It's already a metaphorical extension of the meaning of the word. But then you get this meaning of exact or true. And over time, the meaning of true, that is degree. It says it's so true. It's 100 percent of what I'm copying of what I'm referring to. That's sort of the idea of this magnitude or degree. And it gets shifted so that that's the main meaning. And so it starts being used as a degree word to indicate that something has a huge amount of qualities of whatever you're describing. And what's fascinating is if you look at the history of the word very, what does very mean? It means extreme or 100% of something, right? A lot of something. Well, the actual meaning of very, the original meaning is true or actual. The same meaning is literal. And if you think about French, what's the word for true in French? C'est vrai. It's true. Vrai is actually from the same root as very. It, they both are evolved from the old French vrai, which meant true or actual. But again, what you start seeing is this pattern of using true as a degree word. So Chaucer has a part of the Canterbury Tales where he says he was a very proper fool. Of course, with a much better Middle English accent than I can do. <laughs> And in that case, he's saying he's a true proper fool, with true there being used as a degree word, meaning he's very much a proper fool. And that's how we see this slow evolution of the word starting to mean only one part of what it means to be true, the part that's extremeness. And now we use very in that way since about the 17th century, 
for pretty much every use of it, except in the rare case where we'll say something like, on this very spot, he was killed, which is the original use of the word. And so what I'm trying to show is this evolution that's happened to literally where we've gone from it meaning true to it meaning not true, so, but representing something that feels so real it almost could be true, has undergone the same process as a word that we all use all the time and is not its original meaning either. And that also developed from a word that meant true. I think what bothers us is this opposition of meaning, though. Right, right. And I love learning the etymological roots of these words that are these mainstays of the English language that we use every day here. And for me, yeah, part of it is the fact that this word flipped its meaning entirely. And as you mentioned earlier, it did it because the pace of these changes is speeding up. It did it in the course of less than a generation. Also, I have some objection to it in the fact that we are sort of living in a post-truth world right now in terms of media and people's understanding of what's going on in the world. I Maybe I'm just trying to hang on to one last piece of truth in, in the definition of the world literally here, but can it not also be argued that pedantry serves an important role in the evolution of language as well? With the pace of language speeding up, isn't there an important part to play for those of us of the pedantic persuasion to dig in our heels and apply the brakes and maybe just sort of maintain a little bit of a, a terminal velocity in that pace of change, in that evolution of the language? Because when words literally lose any semblance of meaning, does that not actually cause maybe not the complete downfall of society, but at least communication inefficiency here? Well, you know, I feel like we've done pretty well considering that our language has changed so drastically from Old English. And yet we've still managed to create air travel, automobiles, uh, world peace on a relatively decent scale compared to back in those days, as well as vaccines and pretty much eradicated polio and chickenpox. So I would say that actually, if you're going to look at language change over time, we have very little to fear in terms of decay and have already lost that battle long ago when Old English had case endings, it had grammatical gender, it had number, it had a strong and a weak verb class of which only a few exist of the strong form anymore, like ran, run. So we've lost that battle already. But to your point about isn't it okay to have this mix? I think it's okay. I do. I think there are places where prescriptivism serves a role. For example, in written form, right? Writing is where we record our history. It's where we record our thoughts for later generations and to travel across miles. It is better in those cases to have a code that doesn't change that much because that way it make, becomes more accessible over time and place. And when we slow down the written language, it does definitely allow it to last longer. In formal contexts, perhaps it's also okay to hold us to these certain words that we want to use. But in reality, we're not holding anything back. And it's a belief of those who believe strongly in prescription to think that they actually make that much of an impact because language change creeps in whether you like it or not, because it's not the old speakers that make the difference in the new words. It's the young speakers. And they embrace change regardless of whether older speakers do or not. That doesn't mean I, I, that language has no rules. And I think that's what you're, you're kind of reacting to. Language is driven fundamentally by rules. 
You would not be able to understand what I'm talking about right now if there weren't rules. I would not be able to create words if there were no rules. There are morphological rules. There are syntactic rules. There are semantic rules. There are sociophonetic rules. These are all things I know already as a speaker of a language. That's what keeps language from decaying, not whether I say who or whom. There, there is no impact on the system of language from social rules like that. Those are preferences. They're not rules. And that's where we get it mixed up. I'm not also trying to get rid of prescriptivism. That's really not my role here. I'm wanting people to understand the history behind these features is actually much more surprising and long than they think. And this worry we have that language is going to the dogs that you just expressed, this idea that these things lead to decay. I want people to understand the history behind them, the patterns behind them, because then we'll understand that decay is not in our future, that these are normal and natural processes that have been happening for centuries, and we've existed quite well despite them. Not decay per se, but evolution, certainly. And as the train of grammatical evolution continues hurtling toward the future, those of us, the pedants, will be here manning the brakes, just keeping it reasonable, the pace. But Dr. Valerie Friedland, sociolinguist and author of the new book, Like Literally Dude, Arguing for the Good in Bad English. Thank you so much for joining us today on Lead Balloon. Absolutely. And I think the only thing left to say is later, dude. Sociolinguist Dr. Valerie Friedland is a professor in the Department of English at the University of Nevada in Reno and author of the blog Language in the Wild, which appears regularly in Psychology Today. And her book, like literally dude arguing for the good in bad English, crushed it on the Amazon charts last year and is still available wherever you pick up fine reading material. Thank you very much for listening and sticking with us over the years here. Lead Balloon tells immersive tales from the world of strategic communications, and we're going to be back soon with new episodes. But in the meantime, take a look back at our catalog of 50 great tales from the world of PR, marketing, and branding, and I bet you'll find something that you like in there. Definitely make sure you're subscribed in your favorite podcast app, because we've got some new projects in the works that you are going to want to hear about as well. And we're currently looking for sponsors for the show. If you have an interest in speaking directly to the strategic communications professionals in our audience, visit podcampmedia.com and go to the contact page because we should talk. Lead Balloon is produced by Podcamp Media, where we provide branded podcast production services for businesses. Our podcast studios are located in the heart of beautiful downtown Milwaukee, Wisconsin, but we work with brands all over North America, podcampmedia.com. Will Henry was our dialogue editor for this one. And until the next time, folks, thanks for listening. I'm Dusty Weiss.